Last time, Lester Eubanks was a dead man walking. He had been on death row just three days from execution. That's when the story took a jagged, real crazy turn. Rewarded for good behavior with a trip to the mall, he took his opening. He was outside the prison walls, unsupervised, and he walked away. I was just uh, astounded that this could actually happen. It was Christmas in 1973, and Lester was free, just days into a brand new life. I'm Sunny Hostin from ABC News. This is Have You Seen This Man? We have begun to retrace the steps of Lester Eubanks from the day he boarded a Greyhound bus headed for California. And there was a question nagging at those in charge of his manhunt. When Lester set out, did he have help? For that, we turn again to Matthew Moss. And what are we listening to? We're listening to Daryl Banks. Daryl was a largely undiscovered Motown singer in the 1960s and 70s with some early hits that were climbing the charts. He was a rising star. But as Lester sat on death row in Ohio, Daryl ran into trouble in suburban Detroit. During a fight over a girlfriend, he was shot in the neck and killed. Daryl became part of Lester's story because he left behind a grieving wife. And in her grief, she began writing to Lester in prison. Her name was Kay Banks. When Lester escaped, police took an immediate interest in her. It's right there on the grainy copy of the Highway Patrol report on the escape. The officer wrote that, quote, "...information gathered in the black community of Mansfield suggests Lester was headed to the residence of Kay Banks in North Hollywood, California. They initially suspected a prison nurse served as his getaway driver, taking him two hours north into Michigan. She was never conclusively identified, but the tips to police about Lester's next stop were dead on. He was heading for Kay's house. From Michigan... Lester boarded a Greyhound bus for the long ride to California. As he approached the California state line, it looked as though Lester was about to be caught. This is John Arcudi, a longtime Mansfield police detective, who closely followed the case. Lester, on the bus ride to California, when he uh, reached the California state line, the bus slows down to a stop, he looks out the window, and he sees all kinds of uh, marked police cars sitting alongside the road, and he thought he was caught. They thought the, the game was over. But the officers boarding the bus weren't looking for a fugitive. They were inspectors from the California Department of Agriculture looking for fruit coming across the border illegally. By the time they drove off, Lester had learned an important lesson. It it just emboldened him to believe, I'll never be caught. And and he says, all you got to do is smile. 
It was the first in a series of lucky breaks that would come Lester's way. Lester turned up at Kay's house in Los Angeles, exactly where authorities had predicted he would go. But no one was waiting for him. By the time he arrived from his long cross-country journey, FBI agents had already come and gone. The FBI right away went out and uh, interviewed Kay Banks. And uh, the only problem, it was too soon. He hadn't arrived in California yet. And she says, I haven't seen him. Uh, Don't know anything about him other than he was in the penitentiary. Once that occurred, the FBI left and uh, Lester showed up soon after. There's a lot we don't know about why Lester chose to trust Kay to protect him. What we do know is that there was an important bond between Lester and Kay's late husband, the Motown singer Daryl Banks. His stage name was Banks. His real name was Eubanks. He was Lester's uncle. They were family. Police believe that Lester's escape was not a chance event, that he didn't randomly get selected for a shopping trip and then luck into a ride while no one was looking. A person or persons took him from that shopping center. They met. It was planned out. Arcudi believes the person who helped execute that plan would had to have known prison staff and may even have asked guards to put commendations in Lester's file. Someone helping Lester may have visited him to map out a plan. And this person would have had ties to whoever sheltered Lester after the escape. One person fits this description. Daryl Banks's brother and Lester's father, the Reverend Mose Eubanks. Mose Eubanks had seven children, all of them with large, extended families. For the most part, they don't like to talk about Lester. One of Lester's cousins, a man named Dana Eubanks, is a former prison guard who, like Mose, joined the ministry. He put it simply to me when I reached him on the phone and tried to ask him about Mose. Any ministers in, in Mansfield could probably tell you something about him, but as far as you interviewing me, that's not going to happen. No? No. I reached Lester's brother, John, on the phone in Atlanta, and he talked with me for a few minutes. John was still in high school when Lester was arrested. That must have been a very frightening time for you to be in a high school age like that. We, we had a lot of strength in, in family uh, when, when all, all this went down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, my father, he sat down with all of us, and he uh, 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 told us about the incident. And, um, but there really was nothing he could, he could, nothing we could do about it, but let the, the court do what it needed to do. Did your father say, or do you remember whether you felt that your brother was innocent or whether there was always an understanding that what happened had happened? My, my, my father knew that he was guilty and 
and in less than knew that he was guilty. And um, my father was the type of person that uh, if you did what you did wrong, you're going to reap what you sow. Mose was a significant presence in Mansfield during the 60s and 70s. He was a bricklayer known to local developers for the quality of his work. He served as a minister at the First Baptist Church. And he helped run a group called the Ministerial Alliance. It's a civil rights organization. With the NAACP, they fought for diversity on the Mansfield Police Force. Mose was known as a moral leader in Mansfield, but one whose personality changed after Lester's arrest. Lawrence Rawls is now the president of the Ministerial Alliance, and he knew Mose well. He spoke with us at a crowded coffee shop in Mansfield while on a break yeah, from was, work. Uh, he was a moral person. Um, I didn't always get along with him the greatest because, um, you know, he, you know, he was uh, very, uh, he could be very opinionated. But I mean, I could see how he could be considered a colorful character. But as I knew him, he was, uh, he was a pastor. He was a good man. You know, uh, he wasn't perfect, uh, but he's a good man. Rawls said there was one subject that was off limits when speaking to Mose, his son, Lester. I mean, nobody wants to, 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 to find out that their, their son or daughter has murdered somebody, or you know, I mean, that's I mean, still love your child, even when your child does something that's totally unacceptable. Um, you still love them, you still forgive them. And we heard about another side of Mose from Tom Brennan, who was a longtime reporter and eventually the editor of the local paper. Tom remembered how Mose would turn up at the newspaper offices anytime his reporters started making calls about Lester's case. Mose made it known he didn't like it. I won't say he was like screaming and yelling, but he was angry. He just didn't want anybody thinking about it. You know, my sense at the time was he just is afraid that they might catch him. You know, and I tell you, he had the largest hands I think of any man. He just incredible size, uh, and I think he was a. A, uh, I want to say he was worked in construction, like a bricklayer. Or he was something. a bricklayer. Yeah, because yeah. I remember when you shake hands with him, it felt like sandpaper when you shake the guy's hand. Mansfield police detectives long harbored suspicions that Mose had helped Lester get away. They knew Mose had visited Lester frequently, especially in the months leading up to the escape. Mose knew the prison. He was the founder of something called the Lifeline Program. Lifeline brought inmates out into the community to attend church and do odd jobs around town. Dale Fortney was a detective in Mansfield who helped supervise the search for Lester in the 1990s. He had a supposed prison ministry, which I understood would give him access to different prisons and different uh, administration within the prisons perhaps prison guards. Um, I can't say directly that I know that that helped him, you know, uh, aid Lester in his escape, but somebody had to put him in a position that Lester went from death row to commuted to a life sentence to then a year or two later, now he's such an honor prisoner that he can be taken escorted, unescorted 
uh, and left at a mall to go Christmas shopping. <laughs> it's just it's ridiculous. I mean, I, you just, I, I think normal people can't comprehend that that could actually happen. Whether Moe's helped put Lester in that position is a question plenty of people have considered, but no one has been able to answer persuasively. Lawrence Rawls not only knew Moe's, but also works in the Ohio prison system, and he told us even if Moe's wanted to push for his son to gain privileges, that would have been tough. He could have lobbied for that, but I don't think he would have had any any, um, influence because the prison system is very very structured and no one person is going to uh, talk to warden into doing something i mean that's that's not that's not going to happen i mean i spoke with another man who had developed a close friendship with mose named james banks he's not related to the eubanks family but he came to know mose through his work as a civil rights lawyer for the ministerial alliance james led the charge when they sued the mansfield police department for racial discrimination in their hiring decisions. Initially, he wasn't eager to talk, but eventually he invited me and my colleague Alex Hosenball into his living room. He sunk into an easy chair by the fireplace and reflected on Moe's. Kind of a strange guy, you know, and he had this, uh, you know, really, really good, nice man, you know. Uh, sometimes he was mean-spirited with different people, but... Still, he was very close family-wise. Mm-hmm. You know, he would be protective of family. Well, the one thing that that has been speculated was that Mose exerted influence at the jail, that he had lobbied on Lester's behalf. I don't, I mean, you knew Mose, I don't know him. Yeah. I mean, does that sound plausible to you? Yes, but he would, I mean, because he, he would pick up prisoners on the weekend. And take them to church on Sunday. Pick them up Sunday morning, you know, take them take them to church, and then out to dinner, and then take them back to the jail. You know, he called it... Uh, I asked James Post. Banks if he ever heard about the steps Mose took to try and stop news outlets from reporting about Lester, something we had heard not only from Tom Brennan at the local paper, but from other reporters. They said Mose used his stature to pressure the papers to back off. James Banks remembered this. He wanted those stories to to, to, to stop. Yeah. Did the Ministerial Alliance have that kind of clout to be to be able to say? Yes. Because what we would do is, if we asked some organization to cooperate and they didn't, then there'd be a march right outside their building the next day with 10 or 12 people. And then you would have Cleveland and Columbus uh, news coming down, taking the pictures. So after you do that... But whether Mose was protecting Lester from a distance or whether he was actually in contact with Lester, that was something nobody could answer for sure. The Mansfield police detectives who pursued Lester for decades allowed us to see their field notes. And in them you can see they started to track Moses' telephone calls, at one point obtaining a subpoena for seven years of phone bills. I asked Detective Fortney about this, and he told me the search was futile. He had contacts all over the world. It was nothing for him to make 100, 200 phone calls a month all over the world. And uh, it, 
just made it tough to put a finger on one place, calling one place consistently, um, especially overseas where we didn't have contacts to, you know, chase down those leads. Uh, it was very, very difficult given the seemingly random shotgun pattern that he was calling every month. The detective didn't think this was an accident. No, I think it was planned. Mo's Banks was uh, streetwise and cagey. And as for where he thought Lester could be... Looks like all over the world. Over the years, rumors surfaced now and then that Lester had come back into town to visit Moe's. Tom Brennan, the newspaper editor, told us he remembered when Lester's mother passed away in the early 2000s. Police had heard Lester might return, dressed as a woman. They took it so seriously, they placed officers around the cemetery and flew a helicopter overhead. Having stakeouts or undercover people attend to ceremonies and stuff just to see if he would show up. Tom said rumors Mose was helping Lester lived on until Mose died in 2012 at the age of 89. That wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, that wouldn't surprise me. And I don't know the Eubanks family to know anybody else who may have or may not have played a role. I can't say that. Sure. But it wouldn't surprise me that Mose would, would have played a role in that. In the pages of Tom Brennan's own newspaper, there was one final reminder that Mose took this secret to the grave. His obituary said, Among his surviving family was his son, Lester, whereabouts unknown. When Mose died, rumors surfaced again that Lester would be back in Mansfield, Ohio. But if he was, no one spotted him. Or did they? When we come back, the U.S. Marshals try to track down a woman who was at Mose's funeral. Some folks don't stop searching till they find the truth. If you've got a detective's eye, June's Journey is the game for you. Play as June Parker in a gripping murder mystery as you find hidden objects to help solve her sister's death. You'll hunt for clues in hundreds of beautifully illustrated scenes set in the Roaring Twenties. New chapters are added weekly. Find your first clue by downloading June's Journey today. Available on Android and iOS mobile devices as well as on PC through Facebook games. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Nate Thurston, and I'm supposed to write a 30-second ad that tells you everything you need to know about my podcast, Good Morning Liberty, which I co-host with Charlie, my best friend of 20 years. That's a tough feat to accomplish, but let's give it a shot. 
At Good Morning Liberty, we cover the news every day from an individual liberty perspective. We believe that you own yourself, and a tyrannical, overreaching government is the biggest threat to your liberty. If you agree, you can find a new episode every day of the week on your podcast app or by going to BernieLies.com in your browser. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. It's 2019, and I'm in the backseat of a car with Deputy U.S. Marshal David Seiler as we head to a neighborhood in Pittsburgh. We just pulled into a public housing project where Seiler has a potential new lead. So can I ask you just real quick, what's what's the game plan? What are we doing? So we're going to go over and talk to um, this person of interest, and hopefully this is a person who saw... Lester Eubanks at a funeral in 2003 advised that he was utilizing uh, the name Uncle Pete. If the marshals can prove that Lester attended a funeral under the name Uncle Pete, it would help settle perhaps the most important question about the manhunt. Is Lester still alive? I asked Seiler about this numerous times. How does he know He's not hunting for a man who's already in the grave. Seiler always answers this question by referring back to one of the first interviews he did on this case. It was with one of Lester's relatives, and it wasn't just the person's refusal to talk that caught his attention. It was the taunt that came with it. And the person looked at us and said to me, you don't know where he is, and you're never going to find him. With those words... It tells you, one, he's alive. Two, possibly he has contact with him. I recently asked Seiler to elaborate on this. Due to the large number of interviews that we've done, if he was dead, we would know. They would tell us. Someone would know that he died, he passed away unexpectedly. A number of cases that we've chased down, guys have been gone 30, 40 years. Once we talked to the right family member and walked up to him, they did, yeah, he died. He died here, and they they explained it to us. After Mose died, suspicions continued to hound the Eubanks family. Seiler is careful not to leap to firm conclusions about members of Lester's family. But he says he's interested in them because of the contacts between Lester and his relatives leading up to the escape, and perhaps over the decades. I began reaching out to them a few months ago. I called and left a message for his sister, Diana Burroughs. A few days later, she called back and left this message. Hi, this is Mrs. Burroughs, and I received a call from you 
requesting an interview about an article that you're going to write about my brother, Lester. And I'm declining an interview, and I would prefer that you never call me again. Thank you. Over the summer, I decided to swing by her house to see if she would reconsider, or at least discuss her reasons for not talking in person. Hello? Hi, are you Mrs. Burroughs? I couldn't get close enough for a full interview. That's her, telling me to get off her property and never come back. Thank you, Mrs. Burroughs. Later, I learned that someone I had already talked to, Moses' friend, the civil rights attorney, James Banks, had also done some personal legal work for Moses' children. He said he didn't understand why Diana wouldn't just answer questions about Lester, at least from the marshals. My approach to them, and I told the uh, U.S. marshals that I would uh, see what I could do, but uh, my approach to them is get it over with. Yeah. You know, I know they subpoenaed them to grand jury uh, a while back, but I don't think they got much information out of them. But if there's anything I was surprised when James said this. He revealed that she had been called before a grand jury, a significant detail. It was the first sign authorities had acted on their suspicions that Lester's relatives knew more. Later, the top prosecutor in Columbus, Ron O'Brien, confirmed to us that Seiler had, in fact, asked several of Lester's relatives be questioned under oath. Several years ago, we had several people in front of the grand jury, you know, uh, uh, to inquire of them what knowledge they had about his whereabouts. Uh, So we've, and David's taken a personal, you know, interest in trying to track this down. There's some suspicion surrounding his family that maybe he had help from his from his family. Is, is that your understanding too? That is uh, something that was suspected, but as far as I know, has never been able to be proven. Back in Siler's office, there's a whiteboard with a list of leads that remain open and live. There's a woman he needs to talk to in Canada who may know more, and a man working in a hospital north of Los Angeles. Other leads relate to technology he's used to try and track down Lester. I gather this is like your to-do list. These are like your active things you're looking at. You know, I, I, it's my game plan Friday. Every okay. week I go through, it's game plan Friday. Okay. And uh, hopefully, you know, that one lead that we send out all over the place we're able to follow up quickly and get it um, either put to bed or at least give us uh, an avenue to to move further with yeah. a lot of times they just lead to other leads which is extremely helpful um, when they don't when they do not close that lead um, it can be you know it, it, it could take us another month and a half to two months to, to actually track down another person that can help us close the lead. Huh. Well, it's good that the, the whiteboard is full and not empty and has uh, boxes that still need to be checked. Absolutely. One of these leads involves the lawyer, James Banks. Seiler spoke with Reverend Banks about possibly brokering a deal with one of Lester's sisters. Maybe she or other members of Lester's family would agree to sit down with marshals and tell them everything they knew. 
We talked with Seiler after that meeting, and he seemed encouraged. So he's going to do it as fast as possible. He's going to reach out and have a discussion with them so that we can, we can push this forward. At the same time, Seiler began searching for other members of the large extended Eubanks family. If he could find relatives who were at least willing to talk with police, maybe one of them could help. We were with him when he decided to go see the ex-husband of one of Lester's relatives. I'm hoping that he'll be able to provide us just a, a little color into what happened. Um, we have this huge black and white map of what we think happened. Hopefully he'll be able to shed a little bit of light on what was happening in the 70s, what was happening in the 80s with, in reference to the family. They all knew. Um, they had information to that they just weren't sharing, and, you know, it was that code of secrecy that they weren't providing. So hopefully he can, he can help us. These were the ebbs and flows of an active manhunt. The promise of a deal brokered directly with Lester's siblings seemed to fade until eventually Seiler erased it from his whiteboard. But this new relative, he provided Seiler with new names, possible contacts, And so the list of promising leads filled the board right back up again. Next time. Mose was gone, but there were other relatives that authorities were just starting to learn about. And the way that he always dealt with me was in a very calm manner. Very controlled, very calm, very matter-of-fact. Um, well-spoken. And Lester was starting a new life with a new identity. He wore a lot of cologne and it would give me a migraine. We've compiled photos of Lester Eubanks, including an age progression sketch showing what the U.S. Marshals believed he may look like today on abcnews.com slash this man. You can also find a lot of additional content on the case there, and we'll be updating the page as news warrants. If you have seen Lester Eubanks or have any information about his whereabouts, you can provide your tip directly to the U.S. Marshals at 1-866-4WANTED. That's 1-866-4926833. If you haven't already, subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating and a review. Have You Seen This Man is a production of the ABC News Investigative Unit and ABC Audio. Written and reported by senior investigative producer Matthew Mosk. Additional reporting by producer Alex Hosenball and associate producer Jin Sol Jung. Production by Susie Liu. Special thanks to Josh Cohan, Lauren Efron, and Stacia Dashishku. Cindy Galley is our chief of investigative projects. Chris Vlasto is senior executive producer. I'm Sunny Hostin. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. 
But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.